0: Hello, welcome back to The Real Thing, I am your host Joe Lawrence and we took a little break, I didn't mean to but I did, Uh, but don't worry because we'll be back as we are always back, we're so back all of the freaking time, so it's going to be fine, episodes will be coming out as normal, I just needed to take a break because I was tired, because unfortunately I am a human being and I have... Expended. And also, unfortunately, I am a student and sometimes have to go to school. So it's a bad combo. Um, But nonetheless, we're back with an episode that is going to be a little bit different, actually. So this podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club uh, or Bergen Film Society. And this podcast serves to talk all about what the Film Club is up to, about the programme, why the films are cool, why you should go see them, and dive a little bit deeper if you want that little bit more information about the films that you've seen. But this episode, Bergen Film Club is very excited to have announced and announce again that we will be back with our annual Trash Film Festival, which is back for its third iteration this year, which is very exciting. So... In this festival, we are showcasing a spectacular lineup of the most obscure film titles that no one has ever heard of, and we could promise that this festival is like no other. It'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, close your eyes and wonder why would anyone watch this, or even better, why did somebody make this? Whatever your reaction is, this is definitely an event you must kidnap your friends into attending. It is a, a lot of fun, and it will be happening the 24th to the 26th of November, over that weekend, so putting it out there now, please come, because it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, the program is being announced slowly, and being put out this week, I believe, so definitely, if there's a lot of good stuff in there, so I'll definitely go check it out. I went last year for the first time, and it was definitely very much fun, they showed The Room, they showed a Neil Breen movie, which we are going to talk about in an upcoming episode, Mr. Neil Breen, who the hell is he? Um, and the room, actually, as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we've got these are going to be some side episodes. So today will be a Thursday, and this uh, these episodes will be coming out on Thursdays up until the festival. So I can try and tease you into enjoying it uh, and pique your interest if you like. So yeah, but I thought that you know it's hard to define what trash is because. I think it can be quite a subjective term because, well, firstly, it comes into the subjectivity of what do people like and what do people don't like? Because a lot of people would call a lot of films that I like trash and also vice versa. I watch hundreds upon hundreds of really awful horror movies all the time, but I enjoy them and I think that they're fun. But I can see that another person would call them trash in the same way that I would call every single rom-com that Netflix has made in the past 10 years trash. So it's subjective, but Trash itself has a rich history that goes back around 100 years. So there's a lot of information here, and it's sort of an informal film genre in this way that's come to be quite celebrated. So I'm going to do that this uh, this episode. I'm going to tell you the history of Trash, or as it's more professionally referred to, exploitation film. And yeah, hopefully, give you a bit of the background, a bit more understanding, and see where we go from there. So, an exploitation film, which is how I'm going to refer to it as, is a film that tries to succeed financially by exploiting current trends, niche genres, or lurid content. Exploitation films are generally low-quality, quote-unquote, B-movies, Though some set trends attract critical attention, become historically important, and even gain a cult following, which is probably how a lot of these films come to be so... known. But firstly, I just wanted to say what the term B-movie meant, because it was something very interesting to me. So a B-movie, or a B-film, is a type of low-budget commercial motion picture. Originally, during the Golden Age of Hollywood, this term specifically referred to films meant to be shown as the lesser-known second half of a double feature, somewhat similar to B-sides in the world of recorded music. However, the production of such films as second features in the US largely declined by the end of the 1950s. This shift was due to the rise of commercial television, which prompted film studio B-movie production departments to transition into television film production divisions. These divisions continue to create content similar to B-movies, albeit in the form of low-budget films and series. And there's whole articles about that, and it was really interesting that they're basically just B-sides of good films. (laughs) So, yeah, that was very, I thought that was fun. History is always interesting. So let's get into the history of exploitation film, uh a little bit about grindhouses and drive-ins and then subgenres, which I'm not going to go into all of them because there are a lot and there are also some that I don't want to talk about so yeah at the end of the day this is my dot 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 Bergen Film Club's podcast and I can do what I want more or less Exploitation films often include themes such as suggestive or explicit sex, sensational violence, drug use, nudity, gore, destruction, rebellion, mayhem, and the bizarre. Such films were first seen in the modern form in the early 1920s, but they were popularized in the 60s and the 70s with a general relaxing of censorship and cinematic taboos in the US and Europe. An early example of an exploitation film, the film Ecstasy, from 1933, included nude scenes featuring the Austrian actress Hedy Lamar. The film proved popular at box office but caused concern for American Cinema Trade Association, the most in-picture producers and distribution of America, MPPDA. The organisation, which applied the Hays Code for film censorship, also disapproved of the work of Dwayne Esper, the director responsible for exploitation movies such as Marijuana in 1936 and Maniac in 1934. The Motion Picture Association of America and its predecessor cooperated with censorship boards and grassroots organisations in the hope of preserving the image of a clean Hollywood. But the, distributions and the distributors of exploitation film operated outside of this system and often welcomed controversy as a form of free promotion. Their producers used sensational elements to attract audiences lost to television. Since the 1990s, this genre has also received attention in academic circles, where it is sometimes called cinema." Quote-unquote exploitation is loosely defined and arguably has as much to do with the viewer's perception of the film as with the film's actual content. Titillating material and artistic content often coexist, as demonstrated by the fact that art films that failed to pass the Hayes Code were often shown in the same grindhouses as exploitation films. A grindhouse, or action house, is an American term for a theatre that mainly shows low-budget horror, splatter, and exploitation film for adults. Exploitation films share the fearlessness of acclaimed, transgressive European directors such as Derek Jarman, Louis Banuel, and Jean-Luc Godard in handling disreputable content. Many films recognised as classics contain levels of sex, violence, and shock typically associated with exploitation films. Examples include Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, Todd Browning's Freaks, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, Benoel's Un Chien Andalou, contains elements of the modern splatter film. It has been suggested that if Carnival of Souls had been made in Europe, it would be considered an art film, while if Eyes Without a Face, brilliant film, had been made in the US, then, you know, it would have been categorised as a low-budget horror film. The audience of art and exploitation film are both considered to have tastes that reject mainstream Hollywood offerings. Exploitation films have often exploited news events in short-term public consciousness that a major film studio may avoid because of the time required to produce a major film. Child Bride in 1938, for example, tackled the issue of older men marrying young girls in the Ozarks. Other issues, such as drug use in films like Reefer Madness in 1936, attracted audiences that major film studios would usually avoid to keep respectable mainstream reputations. With enough incentive, however, major studios might become involved, as Warner Bros did in 1969 anti-LSD, anti-counterculture film The Big Cube. The film Sex Madness, in 1938, portrayed the dangers of venereal disease from premarital sex. Mom and Dad, a 1945 film about pregnancy and childbirth, was promoted in lurid terms. She Should Have Said No, in 1949, combined the themes of drug use and promiscuous sex. In the early days of film, when exploitation films relied on such sensational subjects as these, they had to present a very conservative moral viewpoint to avoid censorship, as movies then were not considered to enjoy First Amendment protection. Several war films were made about the Winter War in Finland, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, before the major studios showed interest. When Orson Welles' radio production of The War of the Worlds and the Mercury Theatre of the Air for Halloween in 1938 shocked many Americans and made news, Universal Pictures edited their serial Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars into a short feature called Mars Attacks the World for release in November of that year. Some poverty-row low-budget B-movies often exploit major studio projects. Their rapid production schedule allows them to take advantage of publicity attached to major studio films, for example, Edward L. Alpersons produced William Cameron Menzies' films Invaders from Mars beat Paramount Pictures' production of the director George Powell's The War of the Worlds at the Cinema and Powell's The Time Machine was beaten to the cinema by Edgar G. Ulmer' film Beyond the Time Barrier. As a result, many major studios, producers and stars keep their projects secret. So it's basically just a way of sort of subverting the norm of Hollywood and sort of challenging it in a way, and also similarly challenging films that are coming out and making a commentary on something in a big way before the commentary can actually be made. So in this way, it can be like quite like a political act, but that's not to say that all trash films are political. Sometimes they are just the driven, absolutely driven, self-obsessed, self-believing mind of a... Of a man, usually who thinks that he is God's gift to cinema, making some kind of film in his own vision, his own money, just making a film for making a film's sake, in a way to just to express himself in any way that he can. In that way, Trust Cinema is very similar to Young Thug, because I don't think that he is necessarily concerned with how music sounds. He just wants to put it out there. He has something to say and express, and. I think that's kind of the same vibe as a lot of trash films especially in present day but from this history we can see that in the past it has been a way of challenging the law and the politics of film and also just kind of being a bit rebellious a bit punky and and challenging that Hollywood norm so I mentioned earlier grindhouses and drive-ins a grindhouse is an American term for a theater that mainly showed exploitation films these theaters were popular throughout the 1960s, 70s, and the early 80s in New York City and other urban centers, mainly in North America, but began a long decline during the mid 80s with the advent of home video. As the drive-in movie theater began to decline in the 60s and 70s, theater owners began to look away uh, and look for ways to bring in patrons. One solution was to book lower-cost exploitation films. Some producers of the 50s and the 80s to the 80s made films directly for drive-in market. And commodity product needed for a weekly change led to another theory about the origin of the word, that the producers would grind out films. Many of them were violent action films uh, that would be called drive-in films. Maybe like the blob. That might be a challenging thing for some people to hear that I might call the blob a trash film, but nonetheless. So I mentioned earlier as well, kind of the last section of this article that I've been reading from, is subgenres. Exploitation films may adopt the subject matter and styling of a regular film genre, particularly horror film and documentary film, and their themes are sometimes influenced by other so-called exploitative media, such as pulp magazines. They often blur the distinctions between genres by containing elements of two or more genres at the same time. Their subgenres are identifiable by the characteristics they use. For example, Doris Wishman's Let Me Die, A Woman contains elements of both shock documentary and Sexploitation. So as I said, this began... In the 20s and the 30s and it started with this idea of the 1930s and 40s cautionary films although they feature lurid subject matter exploitation films from the 30s and 40s evaded strict censorship and scrutiny of the era by claiming to be educational they were generally cautionary tales about the alleged dangers of premarital sex intercourse and the use of recreational drugs uh examples of these films would be marijuana 1936, Rufa 1936 Sex Madness, Child Bride, from 1938. Mom and Dad, from 1945. She Said sort of Said No, 1949. So it's basically they were just showing very graphic sex and violence and drug use under the guise that it was teaching people not to do that. But from the kind of whole existence of trash and exploitation films has led to the invention of a very long list of of subgenres within it. So this is biker films. It's cannibal films, car exploitation, mockbusters, mondo films, monster movies, Nazi exploitation, nudist movies, sex exploitation. So I'm going to get into a couple of these and describe. uh Yeah. What's uh, what's going on in these subgenres, and then I encourage you to go look and find something that you could be interested in because there's a lot of information here. So I'm going to start with cannibal films, for example. Cannibal films are graphic movies from the early '70s and '80s, primarily made by Italian and Spanish movie makers. They focused on cannibalism by tribes in South America or Asian rainforests. This cannibalism is usually perpetrated against Westerners that the tribes held prisoner, as with Mondo films, which is a sub of exploitation, uh, and they are sort of like pseudo-documentary and depict sensational topics. The main draw of cannibal films was the promise of exotic locales, graphic gore involving living creatures. Uh, Best known films from this would be Cannibal Holocaust in 1980, in which six real animals were killed on screen, and also Cannibal Ferox, Cannibal Women in the Avocado's Jungle of Death, The Last Cannibal of the World, The Man from Deep River, and yeah, Green Inferno in 2013 as a bon homage to this uh, to this genre. Very interestingly, I'm going to go for monster movies first. These nature-run-amok films focus on an animal or group of animals for larger, more aggressive than usual for their species, terrorizing humans while another group of humans tries to fight back. This is Godzilla. This genre began in the 50s when concern over nuclear weapon testing made movies about giant monsters popular and more realistic in a way. These were typically either giant prehistoric creatures awakened by atomic explosions or ordinary animals mutated by radiation. Among them were Godzilla, Them, and Tarantula. The trend was revived in the 70s as awareness of pollution increased and corporate greed and the military irresponsibility were blamed for the destruction of the environment. Night of the Lepus, Frogs, and Godzilla vs. Hedorah are examples. After Steven Spielberg's 1975 film Jaws, a number of very similar films, sometimes regarded as outright rip-offs, were produced in the hope of cashing on its success. Examples are... Alligator, Cujo, Day of the Animals, Great White, Grizzly, Humanoids from the Deep, Monster Shark, Orca, The Pack, Piranha, Anaconda. That's a very, very fun film. I recommend that very much. Roger Corman was a major producer of these films in both decades. The genre has experienced a revival in recent years, as films like Mulberry Street and Larry Fessenden's Last Winter reflected concerns about global warming and uh, overpopulation. The Sci-Fi Channel, now known as Sci-Fi, has produced several films about giant or hybrid mutations whose titles are sensationalised portmanteaus of two species, including Sharktopus and Dinoshock. Um, nudist films originated in the 30s, as films have skirted the Hays Code restrictions on nudity by perpetually depicting the naturist lifestyle. They existed through the 50s when the New York State Court of Appeals ruled in the case of Excelsior Pictures versus New York Board of Regents that on-screen nudity is not obscene. This opened the door to more depictions of nudity, starting with Russ Meyer's 1959 The Immoral Mr. Tease, which has been credited as the first film to take place uh, its exploitation elements unapologetically at the forefront instead of pretending to carry a moral education or message, such as the cautionary films of the 40s and 30s. This development paved the way for the more explicit exploitation films of the sixties and seventies and made the nudist genre obsolete, ironically since the nudist film Garden of Eden was subject of a court case. After this, the nudist genre split into the subgenres nudity, Cutie, which featured nudity but no touching, and the Ruffy, which included nudity and violent antisocial behavior. Nudist films were marked by self contradictory qualities. They presented themselves as educational films, but exploited their subject matter by focusing merely on nudist camps, most beautiful female residents, while denying the existence of such exploitation. They depicted a lifestyle unbound by the restriction of clothing, yet this this depiction was restricted by the requirement that genitals are not allowed to be shown. Still, there was a subversive element to them, as the nudist camps inherently reject modern society and its values regarding the human body. These films frequently involve a criticism of the class culture, equating body shame with the upper-class and nudism with the social equality. One scene in The Unashamed makes a point about the artificiality of clothing and relates values through a mocking portrayal of a group of nude artists who paint fully clothed subjects. And I feel like I can't end it without talking about splatter films. Splatter, or gore, is a horror film genre that focuses on graphic portrayals of gore and violence. It began as a distinct genre in the 1960s with films of Herschel Gordon Lewis and David F. Friedman, whose most famous include Blood Feast, Two Thousand Maniacs, Colour Me Red, The Gruesome Twosome and Wizard of Gore. The first splatter film to popularise the subgenre was George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. They're coming for you, Barbara. In 1968, the directors attempt to replicate the atmosphere and gore of EC's horror comics on film, Initially derided by the American press as appalling, it quickly became a national sensation, playing not just in drive-ins but at midnight showings in indoor theatres across the country. George A. Romero conned the term splatter cinema to describe his film Dawn of the Dead. Later splatter films such as Sam Raimi's Evil Dead series, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste and Brain Dead featured an excessive and unrealistic gore that they crossed the line from horror to comedy. So there is just so much of exploitation film and trash to like sink your teeth in. It has such a rich and interesting history and there is so much to learn about the creative process and how in a way, I don't maybe I don't feel like recently, trash film has been like so um, challenging the norm as it is like we kind of sit in a place now where anybody can make a film and But not everyone should. Everyone should have the opportunity, but not everyone should. (laughs) Um, So it's not so much a challenge, but it's really interesting to learn about that history, I think. And there's so much information out there, and I really encourage you to go seek out a trash film. Everyone knows The Room, the classic Tommy Wiseau film. But there's so much great, great horror that I love that is so trashy, and yeah, there's so much out there that I really encourage anyone to go and check them out especially giallo films giallo which is like italian slasher films um which dario Argento has been kind of like a big part of um yeah that's been the history of exploitation films and i hope that's kind of piqued your interest and taught you a little bit about what trash is uh just to reiterate that the Trash Film Festival is the 24th to the 26th of November at Bergen Film Club. There is a website, trashfilmfest.no. And I encourage you to follow us on Instagram, also at Trash Film Festival. And yeah, there's going to be some more episodes. Next week, we are going to cover Neil Breen, as I mentioned. The, he kind of trumps Tommy Wiseau for me, honestly, in, in like levels of drive and personal belief in his own craft so yeah but thank you very much for listening this has been quite a fun short episode uh yeah this has been the real thing i've been jill lawrence thank you goodbye